Morning. It's good to see so many of you. I turned around at five to nine and there didn't seem to be anyone here. I thought you'd heard I was speaking, but evidently not. So sorry about that. Um, yeah, we're thinking about the Olympics and I looked up a few Olympic firsts. Because every time there's Olympics, I reckon there's probably some firsts, things that happen for the first time. And um, according to Google, which must be right, um, what would we do before there was Google? I don't know. Um, but apparently the first ever Olympic champion in recorded history was a runner called Caribus. And he actually ran, I don't know what race, it didn't say, but he, was, he ran naked back in those days. So we're quite glad that that's changed, don't we? Um, the first time a swimming pool was used for swimming events was at London Olympics in 1908. So I don't know what they used before then, but they use pool now, obviously. The first black African to win a gold medal was an Ethiopian, Ethiopian marathon runner whose name was Abibi Bikila. And he ran in Rome in 1960. He ran the whole thing barefoot. At least he had more clothes on than Caribus, but I still can't imagine running a marathon with nothing on my feet. The first athlete to be disqualified for drug use was a Swedish pentathlete called Hans Gruner Ligenwall, and he wasn't tested um, positively for performance-enhancing drugs or steroids or anything like that. He was actually drunk. In Mexico 1968, he was disqualified for having excess alcohol. And this year, in 2012, there was another first um, involving a South African runner who got into the 400 metres. And um, he ran the 400 metres for his country and he got into the semi-finals. And in the semi-finals, he came seventh, so he never actually made the finals. And you might think, well... Yeah, great to get in the Olympics, but not quite such an amazing story. But he was a first because, amazingly, this guy, whose name is Oscar Pistorius, has no feet. And he was the first ever disabled athlete to get into the able-bodied Olympics and compete on an equal footing. And he actually, if you've seen him, runs with these like blades um, attached to his, his knees. And uh, he came seventh, which is pretty good, actually, isn't it? If you think about it. Generally speaking, you would expect feet to be important for getting around, unless your name, as I say, is Oscar Pistorius. Your feet are really important for getting around. As an adult, we're meant to walk about 10,000 steps a day. I don't know if ever, any of you have ever done this whole getting a little uh, pedometer thing and seeing how many steps you've done. That's about five miles on an average uh, walking pace. Um, and that's what you're meant to do to stay fit. And that would mean you would do about 2,000 miles a year if you do that. So that's quite good. You could go out of here today, turn left, keep walking in the same direction. And roughly 14 years later, you will come back to where you started. Google is really amazing. <laughs> but your feet are really important. Your feet will take you where you want to go. Everything that you are as a person and everything that you carry in your life will get taken around from place to place by means of your feet. And you know that if you don't treat your feet well, they'll soon tell you about it. And I want us to think about some verses today about feet, which the prophet Isaiah said. And he said this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain. Has anyone here ever climbed a mountain? 
It's a few nods. Little mountain will count, you know. Clint, no, just mountains. Uh, you may have climbed a mountain. You may, like me, have just flown over a mountain range and looked out of the plane window at it. Or you may have stood at the bottom of a mountain and looked up. Mountains are amazing features, aren't they, structurally? They're immense, majestic, they're awesome, they're really beautiful. They're probably the biggest structures that God has put on planet Earth. But it's not mountains that Isaiah describes as beautiful, it's feet. I don't know about you, but feet are not something I would particularly describe as beautiful. They can have hard skin, ingrowing toenails, athlete's foot, bunions, or just plain smelly. Yeah, if you've ever run a marathon and then you looked at your feet, trust me, it's not a nice sight. But to Isaiah, he's saying, no, the feet are beautiful who carry good news. More beautiful, more important than even the biggest, most majestic structures that God has put on this planet in creation is this idea of carrying good news. Does anyone ever say to you, you know, do you want the good news or the bad news? And you're like, well, if I have the bad news first and that will lift me up after, but maybe they're just saying that so that they can give me bad news and then go, there isn't any good news. Or perhaps I'll have the good news first, but then I'll have a disappointment. Or me, I just like hang the bad news. I'll just have the good news. I, you know, we love good news, don't we? And the gospel that we have, the gospel message is good news. And I want us to think and unpack a bit firstly this morning is, what is it about this gospel that is good news? And you might say, well, I already know that, but trust me, if you think about it and if you let it just sink in and spend some time over it and hopefully be re-inspired this morning of what amazing good news message that we carry. And if we really, really believe that, that that's what we carry, how do we, how do we carry it? So I started off thinking, well, how do I sum up this good news gospel message? There's so much to it. And then I thought of some more words from Isaiah, which are prophetic of Jesus. And Jesus actually repeats some of them when he came on earth. And they say this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's some exchange, isn't it? That is some exchange. That is some good news right there. So let's think about good news to the poor. In our society, we're kind of told that if you get rich, that's that's kind of what you're aiming at. Lots and lots of money will buy you lots and lots of happiness. We kind of know it's not true really, but most people actually fall for it. Every week, millions of people buy lottery tickets hoping that this is going to be their week when they're going to get their dreams fulfilled. There's a psychologist in uh, in the States studied the impact of instant wealth on lottery winners, and this is what he said. The dream you have about winning may actually be better than winning itself. There have been families that have just been torn apart by this process. 
Kenneth and Corin Parker were winners of a $25 million jackpot. Their 16-year marriage disintegrated just months after they became rich beyond their wildest dreams. Jeffrey Dampier, a $20 million winner, was kidnapped and murdered by his sister-in-law. In 2002, Jack Whitaker won the largest individual payout in US lottery history. I can take the money, he said at the time. I can take this much money and do a lot of good with this much money right now. But it didn't work out like that. Whitaker's life was consumed then by hardship, including the death of his granddaughter, who was a victim of drug overdose, and also the breakup of his marriage. His ex-wife said this, if I knew what was going to happen, honestly, I would have torn the ticket up. That's really sad, isn't it? And if I was to say to you, you know, think of all the rich and famous people that you know who genuinely seem happy and fulfilled and have good, strong, long-term relationships, you probably could count them on one hand, if we're honest. But if I said to you, who this morning thinks that they're poor? Some of you might say, yeah, I'm poor. Some of you might go, well, no, because we've heard about Albania and we look at Zambia and, and we're not poor. But you know what? How many of you, when you came onto this earth, bought a load of stuff with you? Nobody. And when we eventually leave this earth, how many of you are going to be taking stuff with you? Nobody. We're all on the same level, aren't we, in that sense. Backgrounds and wealth don't matter for the gospel. This good news to the poor is good news to all of us because all of us are poor. We may get to borrow more of the world's resources than others sometimes, but we're all poor fundamentally. So I think that's good news. Good news to the poor. The second thing that Isaiah said is about binding up the brokenhearted. All of us at some time in our lives will either have been brokenhearted, you may feel brokenhearted now, you may be brokenhearted sometime in the future. It's common again to everybody. Suffering is common to all. And here, you know, I started to think about how do I represent this part of the gospel because it's easy to misrepresent it. It'd be easy to say, come on, God, God heals the brokenhearted. You know, come forward, we'll pray for you. God will heal you. God will sort you out. And those of you who aren't brokenhearted will be going, yeah, amen, you know, come on. And some of you may feel brokenhearted and you may go out of this room still feeling brokenhearted and then think, well, why didn't God touch me? Why didn't God touch my life? What's wrong with me? And I just thought that feels to me like a misrepresentation of the gospel message. And then I thought about this. It says, Jesus said, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted. You know, if you walk out of here today and you perhaps go for a walk this afternoon and you're a bit careless and you trip over and go flying and break your arm, you will head on up to Russell's Hall and they'll do some diagnostic tests on you and they'll say, yep, you've broken your arm and they will bind up your arm in some kind of cast and then you will leave. And actually, when you leave, your arm will be just as broken as it was when you went in. The difference will be you'll have this binding around it, if you like. And that binding does three things. First of all, it protects your broken bone. Secondly, it makes sure it heals correctly and all lined up so that when you're done, you'll all be as normal. And thirdly, it enables you to more or less carry on with your everyday life. Yes, a bit restricted, but you, know, you can kind of carry on while the healing takes place. 
And I thought, actually, isn't that a better representation of the gospel? Because we all like the instant fix. We all like the quick fix. We all like to be zapped and, yes, God sort me out right now. But when God says, I bind up the brokenhearted, yes, sometimes we, we hear of a quick fix, but often that's because we haven't heard the story that's gone on before in the person's life. And I really believe that this is true, that when God binds up the brokenhearted, he wants to protect you from further damage. He wants to make sure that you heal right and he wants to make sure that you can carry on having, you know, your life while you're healing. And I just think that's really good news this morning. But one more thing that, um, about that, that sometimes when you damage a part of your body, it'll go numb, won't it? If you've ever cut yourself, it goes all a bit numb. And, and often when we're broken hearted, there can come a sense of emotional numbness, if numbness is a word. And you can sort of... Your feelings can feel a bit dampened. And we're a very kind of touchy-feely kind of culture. And often in church, we'll have the worship and someone will say, you know, you really sense the presence of God or really feel the presence of God. And if you're broken-hearted, you might be feeling a bit numb and you might think, well, actually, I didn't. You know? And you might go away thinking, well, you know what? I'm a bit disappointed because God hasn't, you know, I'm broken-hearted. And you know what? I don't really feel God's presence either. And that can lead to a conclusion that God obviously either doesn't care or is not there at all. And I just want to bring this good news to you. You know, God is here. God does care. God binds up the brokenhearted. And I heard a song, and it's actually from a very, very theological thing called Take That. (laughs) But the words were said something like, you know, my heart is numb, has no feeling. But while I'm still healing, have a little patience. And I think that's actually quite wise words, really. Even from the theology that is, take that. So thirdly, good news. Freedom for the captives. Not just behind physical bars, but people bound by so many other things. You know, on Friday, me and my husband went to the Black Country Museum. Um, we've had a few days off, and we've had a, mostly a staycation. And so we thought we'd go to the Black Country Museum, which was very interesting. And found myself in one of these little nail makers' huts, or whatever you call it. And there's this guy banging out nails. And a lot of my ancestors were nail makers, you see. So I was quite interested in this. And then the guy said, oh, he said, this was the slave trade of the Black Country. And you know, we all like to think we're descended from the, you know, (laughs) aristocracy. But no, the slaves of the black country is where I'm from. Amen. And, but you sort of look and you think these people whose lives were captive in these little dark, dingy places, banging out nails for 25 pence a day, year in, year out, day in, day out just trapped. Now maybe they couldn't get out because of poverty and all sorts of things, but you know, there are so many people who live life almost like that now, and I'm not talking about in a a real sense, but in a metaphorical sense, just bound by addictions and bad relationships and hurt and fear. All the trouble, all the pain, all the fear, the destruction and rubbish that the enemy has put into this world. You've only got to look in your newspaper Turn on the television, look around your town, your city. We hear of children being trafficked for sex, 
We hear of abuse, family breakdown, alcoholism, drug abuse, deception and lies. I could go on, but it's a good news talk and I'm starting to feel a bit depressed. The Bible said the gospel is freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. I think that's good news. Are you starting to get a picture? That message that we carry is really, really good news. This is the year of the Lord's favour. This is the day of grace. This is the day when God says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The price has been paid and the way is open. Broken hearts can be bound up and people who mourn can be comforted. And as he goes on to talk almost like this divine exchange, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's good news, yeah? We live in a world that's lost and it tries to deal with its problems and issues by self-help. And there's a lot that can be said for self-help because at the end of the day, you can't really expect everyone else to sort out your difficulties. And we have to take some responsibility for helping ourselves and leading ourselves. But self-help is limited. It's limited to the resources you have within yourself or the best of the strength and encouragement that you can draw from someone else. You can drink at the stream of self-help and quench your thirst for a while and there is some good to be found in that. But you'll get thirsty again. You will struggle again. And Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. And the water I give him, give him will become a, well, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Good news? Are you nearly all happy that it's good news yet? It's the message we carry that is good news, but there's more than that. It talks about proclaiming salvation. The world we live in is obsessed with prolonging life, making things as good as possible for as long as possible. And why wouldn't the world be like that when that is all they have? You know, when you wrote a story at school, it had to have three things, didn't it? Can you remember what the three things were? That was well taught, wasn't it? Back in the day. The story had to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And this world has to fit its beginning, its middle and its end all into 70 years because that's all they have. In your life, you know, you only have to do the beginning because we have eternity, you know? So we could do the beginning and the middle, the end could be eternity. I don't, it doesn't matter where you draw the line. Yeah, we sing a song 10,000 years and then forevermore. Salvation means we have eternity. This is just the starter. This is just the entree. How easy is it to be a Christian but still want to be in control? To still want, yeah, I still want a really good life. I want to have a good time. It's like saying, yes, God, I'm yours. I want the benefit of salvation, but I also want to kind of just keep one foot back just in case. The happiest, most fulfilled Christians are not the ones who have no problems. And they're not the ones who have never had any doubts. The happiest, most fulfilled Christians I have ever met are the ones who jump into their relationship with Jesus with both feet, 100%. Anything else is a compromise. And there's never fulfillment of joy in compromise. 
So I just want to read that verse again. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. All my life I have been an Elizabethan. One day I'll probably get to be a Charlie. But at the moment I'm an Elizabethan. The whole of my life Queen Elizabeth II has been on the British throne. And I remember as a girl aged nine in 1977, I think, during the Silver Jubilee, going up to Dudley and standing there for hours with a Union Jack, ready to wave it and catch a glimpse of the Queen for at least three seconds. Like millions of others, I got excited when her son married the young lady Diana. Then there was the birth of William and Harry. Then I saw as the family seemed to fall into disarray. There was Sarah Ferguson, divorce, Camilla Parker Bowles, then the crash in Paris. The Queen herself described Annis Horribilis, which I think means she had a bad year. The popularity of the Queen and the royal family was at an all-time low over the last few years. But fast forward into 2012 and see how things have changed. Have you heard God Save the Queen sung a lot this year? And with such real belief. And I said, what's changed? And this is my theory, but I think this year, and not everyone likes the royal family, appreciate that, but I think this year, generally speaking, we've gone from God Save the Queen to God Save Our Queen. When you watched the opening ceremony of the Olympics and you saw James Bond go into the palace and you saw the old woman at the writing desk and you saw the back of her head, you thought that was going to be a lookalike, didn't you? You did? You thought, oh, that, who's that going to be? It's going to be... But it wasn't. This was not a lady who wanted to stand aloof. This is someone who wanted to be involved. She was the real thing, the genuine article, not the queen, but our queen. I don't think it was actually the queen that jumped out the helicopter. <laughs> Sorry, but she is 86, you know. You've got to let her off that, I think. But in every culture and every time, there's always been a sense that there's gods or a god. Gods are to be feared. The gods are to be feared. We need to make offerings and sacrifices to please the gods. Ancient people looked at like, you know, doing things so they could get good crops and so the weather would be good and benefit them. And there was talk of pleasing the gods or the gods are angry. The gods. But how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim to salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. This is your God. This is our God. Not the God or a God. But this is a God who is close. A God who is interested. A God who will, like the Queen, take part. Who doesn't just stand aloof. A God who hears and a God who understands. And a God who suffered like we do. We don't worship the gods. We worship our God. The gods are not in charge. Our lives are not shaped by fate, superstition or good luck. Our God reigns. Have you believed in the good news yet? 
So how, let's change tack a bit, how do we carry this amazing good news message around our world? I want you to introduce you to someone from our family. This is the newest member of the Jewson family. If Merlin can put the picture up. <laughs> Do that again. <laughs> yeah, this is Teddy Jewson, who came to live with the Jewson family at the end of April this year. Yeah, those of you who know me will like, how on earth did you agree? to have a dog because I really don't do dogs I really don't particularly like dogs but it's a long story and it's not a story for today you'll have to talk to me in the coffee shop if you want to know how this happened to come but this is Teddy Teddy is now six months old and he's actually quite a bit bigger than this picture which was taken a few months ago I want to tell you what happens if you take Teddy for a walk and you meet someone this is what happens firstly they do what you did they go oh isn't he cute then they go, oh, what's his name? Then they go, oh, how old is he? And then there's a pause, if you pardon the pun. And without fail, the next sentence is this. Hasn't he got big feet? He's going to be huge. <laughs> you can't quite tell from that picture, but he does and always has had really, really big feet. Okay, we can lose the picture now, Merlin, because um, they won't concentrate. Thank you. <laughs> but the size of Teddy's feet, I was not with the family when they went and chose Teddy from this litter of puppies, so I don't know how big the other feet were of the dogs, but Teddy's feet have always been big. But the size of his feet has always given us an indication of the size of dog that he is going to become. And we've always known that he's going to be really, really big. And I decided that today probably... We have a big message. The gospel's a big message. And I reckon that the size of your gospel-carrying feet is an indication of the sort of Christian that you are becoming, and me as well. I don't mean are you a size 6 or a size 9. I mean how big is your capacity for the message? How passionate are you about carrying the gospel? Do you have Olympic-sized feet for carrying this amazing message that we've heard about this morning? And just as a little advert, in a couple of weeks' time, it will be September. Unfortunately, the summer, glorious as it's been, will be over and we'll be heading to the autumn. And we have a four-week boot camp with Mark Greenwood. And he is coming to inspire us and to give us some tools about spreading this amazing message. And some of you will jump into this with both Olympic-sized feet. You'll lap it up. You can't wait to be inspired to spread the message and you'll use what you've learned to carry the gospel. And you'll see some results. You'll see some people come to know God. And you'll spark off their enthusiasm as they meet God for the first time. Maybe friends, maybe neighbours, people that you've prayed for for years. You'll have some disappointments, yes. But your Christian life will be buzzing. Some of you will already have thought of an excuse why you can't do boot camp. You're too shy. You have an exercise class. You're too busy at work. You're just not a gifted evangelist. That's for other people. I know all the excuses because I really already thought of them. But I want my Christian life to be buzzing. I want people to know that I know and love to come to know Christ. It's a big message. And my feet need to be beautiful and Olympic-sized to carry it. 
And we often in this church talk about walking across a room. And if you're newer and you hear that, you might think, oh, I don't really know where that comes from. And I just want to briefly explain where that phrase comes from. It's basically, um, there's a guy in the States called Bill Hybels, who's a pastor of a large church. And uh, he, he met a guy once who um, was a Muslim and he'd become a Christian. And this guy's story was that he was a businessman and he always used to have to go to these parties and gatherings as a businessman and interact with people. And because he was a Muslim, he was often left on his own at the side of the room. No one used to really come and talk to him and he'd just basically stay as long as he had to um, to, get, to get by and then he'd make his excuses. And one day, he said, he went to one of these do's and a guy from the other side of the room spotted him, saw that he was on his own walked across the room, introduced himself. That guy was a Christian, and long story short, they became friends, and eventually the Muslim found Jesus Christ and became a Christian. But Bill Hybels noticed that this story all started with this Christian guy doing something as simple as walking from one side of a room to another. And that's where we get the phrase, walk across a room from. And uh, Bill Hybels has written a book called Walk Across the Room, and I just wanted to share with you the beginning of it, which is going to be really brave because I'm reading it off the iPad. So if the technology really lets me down, I can't even open the cover at the minute, alone the technology. This is just the introduction to the story, and it's quite long, but I hope you'll find it interesting, and I hope you'll get a sense of excitement about the gospel. Two summers ago, I experienced a collision of circumstances while on a boating trip off the Wisconsin coast of Lake Michigan. I was alone, my heart was in a posture of worship, and I had some time on my hands. I pulled into a tiny harbour, tied up the boat, and was tidying up the place before relaxing for the evening. After studying my boating charts to determine where I'd sail the next day, I realised I was only ten miles from the campground where I'd invited Christ to come into my life as a teenager. I'd visited the same harbour on several occasions throughout the years, but for some reason on that particular day, I was prompted to go and stand on the hillside where I'd first met Christ. The more I thought about it, the more the idea gained, gained steam, so I decided to hunt down transportation. After finding a phone booth, I placed a call to the only cab company in town. Surely they would make the 20-mile round trip for me. On the other end of the phone, the dispatcher wasn't going to budge. Sir, it's too long a drive out there. We just don't do that. I haggled with her, threw more money into the equation, but it began, I began to realise I wasn't getting any closer to my meaningful walk down memory lane. Do you know anyone who would be willing to help me make the trip, I pleaded. She told me she did. She knew a guy who was down on his luck and would do anything for money. Maybe he would take me. I've never been opposed to reasonable risk, so 25 minutes later, a thoroughly trashed Ford Explorer pulled up. Its owner looked equally ragged, not surprising, given my phone call had jolted him from a dead sleep at four in the afternoon. If I were a betting man, I'd have put money on him having more tattooed, covered flesh than not, but nothing was going to eclipse the allure of the mission for me. I climbed in. As we headed out, I noticed all the things that were supposed to stay still in the car were in motion. Rattling, shaking and threatening to fall off at any moment. Ironically, the things that were supposed to move wouldn't, such as the passenger window. But the guy was nice enough and frankly I was just glad to be en route. The fuel gauge was on empty and when I suggested we stop to buy some petrol, the man said, Really? 
I couldn't do that. Come on, I insist, you're really helping me out here. I'd like to return the favour. So we eased into the station and he, hoped, he hopped out to start the pump. Two bucks, that's what I'm putting in, he said, as if, as if asking my permission. Go ahead, go crazy, I hollered, make it ten. When he joked that in six months he'd owned the vehicle, he had never had a full tank, we agreed to fill the thing up. Back on the road, he had this huge grin on his face. Handles different with a full tank. Just keep her on the road, my friend. A few minutes later, we arrived at the camp entrance and he asked what he was supposed to do while I handled my business. I could tell he was a little unsure about why I'd hired a stranger to drive me all the way. I need to run up ahead for a few minutes to take care of something, I explained. You wait here in the car, I'll be 15 minutes and then we'll be head back. Must have seemed reasonable enough because he gave me a quick nod and I opened the door to get out. As soon as my feet hit the ground, I jogged away from the truck, quickly covering the 300 yards to reach the exact place where I'd encountered Grace for the first time. As I slowed down to approach that little patch of real estate on the side of the hill, the sun beating down on my face, it all come rushing back to me. This was the spot. By age 17, I'd already packed a lot of living into life. Even then, I knew enough to recognise the accumulation of more toys and the desperate search for approval the ceaseless striving for success weren't covering it. My spiritual experience that night wasn't prompted by someone delivering a stirring message or asking me three deep questions. I met Christ because while walking from the hall back to my cabin, I was suddenly penetrated by a single verse of scripture that I'd memorised as a kid, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. He saved us. Just after nine o'clock that night, the words I'd read so many times before hit me in a fresh way. Could it really be that God cared enough about me that he would make provision to save me, even me? For the first time in my young life, I faced my biggest doubt head on. There's no way I could make matter so much to God he would make salvation available to me free as a gift. To that point, everything about my existence could be summed up in two words, earn it. My father had built into me a monstrous work ethic and reinforced my earn-it earn mantra daily. You earn every penny you make. You earn your way into the starting line upon the basketball team. You earn good grades. You earn it all. I've been trying to impress God my whole life. I remember thinking I've poured all my effort into proudly presenting my good deeds to him, my righteousness, my hard work, my striving. But I felt sceptical all the while. Would it ever be enough? Truly I wondered if I would ever reach God's quota and be found acceptable. On that night in eastern West Wisconsin, the Holy Spirit imparted to me whatever presence of mind I needed to understand Titus 3 verse 5, and I met Jesus Christ in an authentic way. I threw open the doors of my heart to him and what at the time felt like some sort of amazing grace attack. I don't know about your faith journey, but I felt the impact of my salvation physically. With my not-so-professional driver waiting for me in his truck, I stood in that place a few more minutes and thanked the God of the universe for seeking me out. I thanked him for imprinting that extraordinary verse on my mind at that precise moment in my journey and for radically altering the hinges of history in my life. For redirecting me from the business world to church work world and for blessing me with a Christian wife and two fantastic kids. As if all that weren't enough, he'd also surrounded me with great friends, challenging issues to address and a compelling vision to pursue. What grace. My gratitude list seemed to go on forever. 
as my mind flooded with God-given gifts I'd received since that night at camp. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Wondering if I'd lost my ride, I pulled myself together and jogged back to the parking lot. I've never been so relieved to see a run-down vehicle. After climbing into the car, my driver fired the engine and started the drive back. Not two minutes into the trip, he looked over and said, what was that about? I glanced over at him and he stared at the road. Me standing on the hill over there? Got to admit it's a little weird, he said. I thought you were going to meet someone, but you just went to all this trouble to stand alone on the side of a hill. Why? You really want to know, I asked. When he nodded, I told him I wanted to come and stand on the exact piece of land where I met God. Really? And how exactly does something like that happen? I went on to explain I'd had the most powerful experience of my entire life on the side of that hill. I told him I'd grown up hearing about God and learning about church, and I'd been on self-improvement plans for years, always hoping to set righteousness records and earn my way to God. Everything changed for me on that hill. It's the place I learned what it was all about. My comments sat in the air for a few seconds, and I waited for some response. Suddenly he piped up, well then, how do you? Relishing his candour, I told him that the way it had happened to me through the single verse of scripture. For me, it was the book of Titus, not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. More silence than a hint of awkwardness. That's a mind blower, isn't it? He then asked what I'd done after that, and I explained the process I went through of opening my will and heart to Christ, asking him to forgive my sin and lead my life through his gift of grace. As I finished my story, what a holy moment, I thought. You're not a loser, I said to him. You're anything but a loser. You're so important to God, he's been pursuing you since the day you were born. You can have the same relationship with God that I found in my late teenage years. It can happen to you anytime, anywhere. If you accept his gift of grace, you'll be made new. When we arrived back at the marina, I handed him some money and thanked him for his willingness As he prepared to leave, he said, I never would have guessed today would turn out like this. Thanks for saying what you said to me. You know, there's a pastor starting a new church right by where I live. He keeps coming by my apartment saying his church presents the gospel message in a new way and I might like it. The pastor's a pretty good guy. I've been stubborn to go, but this weekend, maybe I'll check it out. It was quite a long story and I apologise for that, but I wanted you to get this idea. Here's a guy who'd been a Christian for years and years and years, and yet still the sense of grace and the sense of God's love and the sense of meeting Christ for the first time, still just as fresh and just as new as it was when he was a teenager. And I think the reason for that is because of his carrying of the gospel throughout his life, because of his sharing it, because of his meeting people and sharing his story with them. And we can be like that. You know, we're, not all, we're all created differently. We're all created in the unique way that God wants us. But we're all given feet that should be shod with the gospel. We're all asked to walk around this earth, taking the message to people. And as we do that, and as we see God at work, we get back so much more than we give. As we see God at work, that may, you know, your Christian life can really get buzzing and really move forward and really grow. And I wanted this morning to just be a really positive encouragement to you about this good news message that we carry. So one final thing. When we saw the Olympics uh, begin and all the athletes came into the stadium, they all come in with the flags, don't they, of their different countries. And there's a sense of which this is not just 
about us in, in the UK. This is a sense, this is a global thing. This is people from all different races and ethnicities and countries from all over the world all coming together to celebrate sport. And in the same way, you know, this gospel message isn't just about us here. This gospel message is spread across the whole face of the earth. And um, as we come into a close, let's ask the band just to come back. But I just want to show you something. Because I wanted to give you this impression. You see, often, especially in this country, where sharing the gospel can be quite difficult sometimes. Because a lot of people are brought born and brought up in the idea now that there isn't a God and it can really be quite hard and I know when I went to Albania a couple of years ago and we did an open air and so used to doing open airs and, and speaking to people and in this country people like walk past like that don't they because there's a hardness and in Albania there wasn't and it was quite refreshing and, and things are different and I just want to encourage you that all over the world the gospel is being shared so I sent a few emails out just to a few people I know and a few friends of friends. And I just want to show you um, what came back. Because the band are going to start to play. And uh, this is where the gospel is being spread across the earth. So the first picture, Merlin, if you can. This is Hales Owen, not very far away. The gospel is also being spread in Wales. And in Ireland. You might recognise some of these people on some of these pictures. Holland. This is James. He's actually at a conference with OM. And there's actually 236 people of that in that conference just going out to 20 different countries. I haven't got pictures of all of those. But this represents that. Bulgaria. Our very own team from Albania. The gospel's been spread in India and in Thailand, in Singapore, and as far away as Australia. The gospel is being spread in New Zealand and, of course, right now in Zambia. The gospel is being spread in South Africa. And actually they have a double portion because the next photograph is also South Africa. What about the Cayman Islands? And the United States of America. And the final picture I have is Canada. God belongs in my city and that's Vancouver. That's just 15 photos. And if we just put them on the map, you can see the gospel, the good news being spread across the earth. This doesn't mean it's not happening in Japan or Brazil. That's just, these are the people I know and friends of friends. But isn't that amazing? Look at that from the top left, right down to the bottom right. There are people spreading this gospel of the good news from one side of the world to the other. We're not alone. The church is alive and the church is well and the good news is spreading. Let's stand. We're going to finish by singing a song that says the world's shaking with the love of God. And often we don't see that. If you put the television news on, you don't always see that. But it's true. He's great and he's glorious. And there's an element of this song that talks about what's actually happening. And there's also a side of this song that's prophetic. So let's sing it with gratitude and with thanks. And also 
as a kind of prophetic statement that the gospel is being spread across the earth. 